everybody and welcome to another episode of Steampunk Coffee um, Behind the Beans. I'm really pleased to be welcoming Bruno Costa uh, with us from Camba Coffee. Uh, Camba is one of our green bean suppliers and um, they have in fact sourced uh, a coffee that we have just now, we've just released, which is the Bale Mountain uh, from Ethiopia. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this coffee um, in particular today as well. So first of all, if I could just welcome you, Bruma, Bruna, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, my pleasure. <laughs> um, it's really, really nice to have you uh, come on our podcast, Bruna, because we met um, a couple of years ago in Ethiopia now um, and sort of began our, our working relationship then. Um, and it's been really lovely seeing your company develop. You were just setting it up when we met. So I was wondering if you could maybe just start off by telling uh, listeners a little bit about Kamba, how it started, and maybe a bit about your background in coffee. Okay. Wow, it's been two years already. <laughs> yeah, so Kamba started in a really spontaneous and like serendipitous way, if that word exists. Um, <laughs> So Israel, who you met in Ethiopia, and the producer of the coffee you just launched, he is really close friends with Rupen, who is the other uh, shareholder of Kamba. And Rupen owns a more commercially focused um, coffee trading company. But him and Israel wanted to sell specialty, start selling specialty coffee. They started doing it uh, like with Equatorial traders. But, which is Rupin's other company, but they thought it, it um, those specialty lots, they needed like a more focused sort of company to communicate them and really promote the specialty work that Israel was doing. So they started thinking about that and they, they launched um, Kamba. I mean, they didn't launch it, they started planning it and on the other side of the world, I was um, working in Germany for another coffee importer. And then I returned to Brazil to work on exporting specialty coffee from Brazil. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was like finding issues because I didn't have direct access to roasters that I wanted to sell like small volumes here and there. I had to go through importers. So I met Rupin as a client and he told me about his idea and Emma was already on board. I think you, you met Emma already. She was working for Equatorial, but she was also interested in moving to specialty, not so commercially focused mm -hmm. office. So it was the four of us, Israel, Rupin, Emma and I, we like got together and Kamba started from scratch. It started in September 2018, but we had the first coffees in January yeah. of 2019. So it's relatively new. Yeah, and January 2019 is when we, Ludvika and myself, did that origin trip to Ethiopia. And we visited many of, well, we visited two of Israel's washing stations. Um, we visited a few smallholders uh, farms um, and then we also saw the dry mill that Israel runs in Addis. Yeah. Um, 
and we were traveling in the, the region where the Bale Mountain comes from, actually, although we didn't go to Bale Mountain. Um, but that's where, that's where we met each other, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, the Bale Mountain is like a single farm Israel owns, but it's not the easiest to access because it's really in the highlands in a like a wildlife park in Ethiopia, yeah. uh, in West Arsi. So it's really high altitude and like, so it's really hard to access it. You need specific trucks and stuff. That's why we didn't go in the origin trip because we were such a big group that we didn't have a vehicle, a vehicle to take us all. Yeah. But I was hoping to visit it soon, but mm -hmm. now with COVID is a bit more difficult to travel and stuff. About how far away was it from the washing station where we stayed? It was sort of like in between a bit west from, from Awasa and the washing stations where we stayed. Yeah, so we stayed at Adola, didn't we? Yeah, which is Guji region. Yeah, yeah. And so this so, is the west from there. Yeah. yeah, east, I guess. Oh, east. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we were about 50 miles, weren't we, south of Addis? Was it about 50? Was it I don't do miles, but... <laughs> oh, God, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it was a full day's travel to get yeah. there from Addis. Like, especially with issues you might have in the road and stuff I think it we took like seven hours no from yeah. Addis to took a lot longer to get back than it took to go for some yeah because of the national festivities it was yes that's right yeah yeah which was really amazing to see but yeah yeah Um, and so can you tell us maybe a little bit more about your own personal background in coffee then? Because you come from a coffee producing family. Uh, sure. So yeah, my family has been in coffee for the past three generations. And my dad is a producer and an exporter of coffee. Um, I always wanted to like get involved with the family business. But at the same time, I really like to travel and to see like, different things live in different places and when I first moved to Europe and started working in coffee abroad I came across like all of cupping all of the other coffees from other regions so I wanted to like get involved with also other regions mm -hmm. um, I mean other countries and that's when I went to Ethiopia for the first time it was quite randomly like I went with the Berlin coffee Berlin school of coffee and was really fun, like really nice to be in another country, try the coffees, or even in Europe, it's very unique as a Brazilian to be able to try coffees from all over the world because in Brazil we are not allowed to import mm. coffee. So you had never tried coffee from other countries before you came to Europe? No, I mean, I, I tried every time I traveled abroad, but it's not a thing like, you know, here now I have access to roasting samples from wherever I want. And we only trade Brazil and Ethiopia, but the, I mean, in, in the UK, you can try coffees from everywhere. Yeah. And so, yeah, also, sorry. What were your thoughts when you first tried a completely different coffee from Brazilian coffees? Actually, I think um, the first coffee that really blew my mind 
because I I was never so much focused on specialty coffee. I was like interested to learn more about like fair trade, sustainable. I wanted to understand like how can coffee be fairer, but not necessarily I was uh, understanding so much about specialty. But then in this importer where I was working for in the sustainable department in Germany, I tried a Sidamo, a washed Sidamo from Ethiopia for the first time. And then I was like, wow, this is like a cup of lemon and honey and what is this, you know? And then I started to try more and more. And I was really impressed that, because I tried a lot of specialty coffees from Brazil before, but it's just so different. Like each country has its own characteristics. And I was really interested to just see what it is. But I confess Ethiopia was always my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's why I went like randomly because I just I was just super in love with Ethiopia and Ethiopian coffee. It was pure luck that now I work directly with Ethiopia, but it it has always been my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, it's really special, isn't it? It was a dream yeah. to go to Ethiopia as well. I I particularly love Ethiopian coffee and it was my earliest memory of a of a coffee that blew my socks off as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember? It was it well, see, this was back before specialty really. So it was in a Starbucks and it was Ethiopian Harar, which mm. again is very different from what you know we're we're drinking now from um you know Gucci and so on. But uh yeah, it was just so different from any coffee I'd had before up to that point, you know, that it really it really stuck with me that, you know, that amazing kind of yeah, I mean, when I tried this Sidamo, it was also years ago. And like now I've tried even more specific, mind-blowing, like Valle Mountain is so amazing. But only like a simple Ethiopian coffee was just an eye-opener for me. Um, and so that's really interesting what you were saying about how you started just in like regular coffee, but you were interested particularly in how coffee is traded and so on. Um, and, and now you're working in specialty. Can you maybe explain to people a little bit about, I mean, presumably that's because you feel specialty is a better or a fairer system, or is it just that I mean, what yeah. in particular is it about specialty that you feel is, is working? So the thing is, when I was um, interested in coffee, like I told you, and uh, understanding fair trade and all the certifications is because I was working to get my dad certified. Mm. And then I wanted to understand, like, are, they are really costly, those certifications. So I wanted to understand, are they actually effective and how can this change people's lives and how can we like just make the industry better in general but not like oh i'm gonna change the word i just i wanted to understand what is best like focus on quality or focus on those certifications or both so then yeah so i was studying that on my master thesis and later i got a grant to make uh, to work on a research project in this topic in Germany that's how I ended up in Germany yes. and 
So my thesis was all about that, about like focusing what's best for farmers and for the industry in general, specialty or certifications. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed a lot of people, I researched and I mean, I fell in love with specialty, but also my conclusion is for farmers as an individual, quality, focusing on quality will always bring the best return. Okay. So your conclusion was that it was better for the farmers than certification. Yeah. Because certification in the end of the day is like quite works quite well for big farmers in countries like Brazil, Colombia, etc. But the small farmers, it's a bit of a conflict of I don't know, it's tricky to to understand how this can benefit them because they kind of get left out. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive to pay for an audit if you are a small farmer. And then a big farmer, 10 times, 20 times the size will pay the same fee. So yeah. it's... It's interesting because this is something that we actually uh, thought a lot about and talked a bit about in Ethiopia, you know, specifically about or organic certification. Um, and it's interesting, like, uh, maybe to explain first that in Ethiopia, um, more so than in, in Brazil, I, certainly um the the coffee tends to be grown in in people's individual little plots uh, small holders um sort of gardens basically um and people are growing coffee because it grows wild there in amongst other things that they're growing so they might be growing yeah. their, their you know vegetables and and bananas and all kinds of things are all they're all mixed together on the same plot so for the coffee to be certified organic there needs to be no chemicals of any sort used on the entire plot, not just not sprayed on the coffee. Um, in fact, the coffee doesn't get sprayed with anything or, or have any kind of artificial yeah. generally, does it? Because those are expensive anyway. But it, it, it may get contaminated if you do like very strict te tests. I mean, in Brazil, for example, it's almost impossible for a farmer, if even if he wants and he complies with everything, for him to become organic is really difficult because if the neighbors is not organic, mm -hmm. they might fail the test when the, once the coffee reaches um, Europe and the test for glyphosate is run. So it's very complex, yes. especially organic. I don't think certifications are bad in general, especially fair trade and the sustainable ones because they open a discussion that was fundamental to for us to be where we are now. Mm -hmm. But I think nowadays we have better mechanisms to like to yeah to compensate farmers fairer and to speak about traceability because nowadays we can just communicate more openly. It's, I think it's the same with like food that before there was this trend, everything has to be organic, organic, organic. And now we came across the farmer's markets and sourced locally and stuff. So it's all about trusting and communication with suppliers instead of like certification bodies and official things. Mm -hmm. And those certification processes, like you mentioned, are very expensive. I mean, is it? Yeah. Is it possible to give a sort of context of, you know, relative to like what a farmer would earn? It's quite hard to do that, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been so long that I did this research that I, I, I think if I told you like numbers, it would be so outdated. But what I know from like speaking to traders these days is that the difference in price for certifications such as Rainforest and Oots, which are more UTZ, which are more commercial, they would be almost nothing compared to the stock exchange price. Yeah. Organic, the farmer gets a lot of money for it, but uh, then the, we have all these issues we were talking about, which are different and more complex, I would say. Yeah. And then we have fair trade, which also has its flaws, mm -hmm. but also has its benefits. It's not ideal. I don't think it can apply for specialty coffee. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have, um, you know, we we actually wouldn't be able to sell a label of coffee as organic because as a roastery, we're not certified as organic. So if we roast uh, an organically grown coffee, it might have organic stamped on the bag. Uh, we wouldn't be allowed to put that on the bag of roasted coffee because we're also using our roaster for non-organic coffees. So um, yeah, just like to give people an idea of kind of the process. Yeah. Yeah. And in the sense of like, I don't know, the, even in Brazil, there are some farmers I buy from, the, the coffee might even be organic, like maybe it won't pass an organic test because as I said, the region is not fully organic, but it, I don't know, sometimes I think that if we could educate ourselves and our clients and the entire industry for like, think about who you are buying from, the story behind it um the region and things like that more than an official certification because as you said it's just a stamp in the end of the day yeah important well, but for yeah. people like us focusing on quality so much mm -hmm. in my opinion it's just a stamp yeah and when i when i've had deeper conversations with customers to ask about you know to find out why they're concerned about organic i mean i think it comes down to obviously concern about what they're putting into their own bodies, but also concerned about the people producing the coffee and being, um, you know, subjected to kind of these chemicals. So, um, you know, we, I mean, we're, we're happy when customers ask us questions like that. Is it fair trade? Is it organic? Because it shows that they care about how the coffee is produced and where it's coming from. Um, but that's great because then it opens the door to a conversation that is actually very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> There's no kind of yeah, it's very complex. Even I feel sometimes like it's tricky to even say our opinions about these topics because there's so much you need to understand behind everything. It's like, yeah, I don't know, a farmer that maybe cannot afford an official certification might be doing a better coffee, a more natural, organically produce coffee but he just can't afford certification so it's very complex i've certainly in relation to food i have seen you know some sort of programs about organic production of food which does because of the costs involved uh, it can tend to be on these massive massive farms and, and and stuff and actually it's not producing the result that the customer is really hoping for or thinking about it's actually just perpetuating that you know massive kind of industrialization of agriculture um, whereas supporting a tiny very local grower 
and, and you know, getting something that is produced in the area where you live rather than something yeah. that's flown out. And seasonal stuff. Exactly. That is, um, you know, labeled organic. That's, that's not actually better for the environment or you or the producers necessarily. So yeah, there are complex questions. I mean, certainly when it comes to like the coffee supply chain, um, we are constantly <laughs> trying to figure out ways that as a roastery, you know, we, we can act in the best possible way. Um, I mean, obviously, the more you learn about coffee supply chain and, you know, how coffee yeah. has been traded, the more you realize, like, it's obviously really has massive problems, massive inequalities. But that's one of the things that is quite interesting to talk to you about uh, with regard to, you know, again, coming back to like this Bale Mountain from Ethiopia, because Israel is, you know, an owner of Kamba who are selling the coffee to us. And he is also the person who owns the farm, the Bale Mountain farm. And is there a, a washing station there at Bale Mountain as well? Yeah. And does that only wash and, and and process the coffee from his farm or does he also process uh coffee from smallholder farmers in the area or how does in that this case in the case of valley mountain is one of the only ones that is only his coffee because there are not that many farms in the region like when we went to adola and anasura you saw that there is like a really farm region so there were a lot of little farmers was like a full community living there so in that case he buys from locals but then in valley mountain it's quite remote so it's his own thing yeah okay so then so he is growing the coffee there and then processing it and then shipping it to the dry mill that he operates in Addis. yeah sporting it and then he's also uh you know the one selling it to roasters here in europe and um other places so um and that's kind of what we mean when we talk about like a vertically integrated supply chain where um you can see clearly the procession you know like from the bean to the person drinking it and we know exactly where it's from and who's kind of been involved but generally yeah. in coffee that isn't the case is it i mean that's a really fairly unusual yeah, I mean, this is in this case, I guess it's there's no better way to know that the money paid for this coffee from the final consumer is going to be reinvested in Ethiopia somehow because he's part of it. It's not like just as a supplier, he's involved in the entire supply chain. But yeah, it, it's not, it's very, very unusual for coffee. Yeah. Yeah, and when we were in Ethiopia, we, you know, visited and saw, well, we saw basically sort of the reinvestment in the communities around um, Adola, you know, and we visited a school there. And, um, yeah, it was, it was nice to see um, the effect of the kind of trade of coffee and, you know, that, that trade yeah. in, in, that, in that area. Um, I mean, no, sorry. Uh, as you might remember, when we were traveling in Ethiopia, Israel and some other exporters, more or less like younger exporters, um, they were the ones pioneering, getting together and pioneering 
for the government to allow them to export coffee with more traceability like so single farm coffees were not allowed before yeah. or not even single washing station coffees were not allowed before and it's quite recent that they were able to export their own coffees instead of exporting coffees from the ECX, which is the Ethiopian Coffee Exchange. So yeah, this is Ethiopia is getting more and more traceability, which is amazing because basically before we would never be able to taste a coffee like Bala Mountain. We'd just get mixed in the yeah. in a big lot of natural coffees or washed coffees. Yeah. And they were also experimenting um, when we were at Ansora, we saw them experimenting with different processing methods to try to add value as well to the crops. Do you want to maybe um, talk a little bit about like processing methods and what effect that can have for growers? Yeah, so um, he, we have now some actually varietal experiments that he made, like even once I sneaked in some uh, Mundo Novo seeds from Brazil for him to grow in Ethiopia. It's not very legal, but you know. <laughs> and then uh, he also took some geisha from Colombia and um, did some anaerobic experiments and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think this is all super um, cool. And uh, I mean, Israel is a young guy, so he just likes to experiment and try new things, make uh, cool coffees and things like that. Um, I think it's great for us as a consumer, but I'm a bit skeptical on how those experimental coffees can really change the industry because it's for farmers that can afford to experiment, you know? Yeah. And I think like giving the right value to regional um, coffees, small farmer coffees, that's also important. Mm -hmm. so I think it's nice to taste everything I mean we should be like the wine industry innovative and always trying to create new crazy tastes but also we still want the terroir concept no where we can yeah have the feeling of each region and stuff Um, I, I think an interesting thing that we've definitely noticed in interacting with the consumer of the coffees is that, I mean, there's just different things for different people as well. You know, some people will, and I would say probably actually the majority of people um, will really love coffees that are more kind of mellow, chocolatey, nutty. I mean, those are definitely like the most popular, smooth, you know? Um, yeah. And then we, you will have um, a few, you know, a smaller percentage of people will be wanting to have the crazy, more experimental ones that taste like wine or, you know, um, yeah. been really unusual in a coffee. Do you remember the one we had from you? Um, oh, I was... That first one. Yeah. I've forgotten what it's called. What yeah, a boozy Brazilian one you had from us, no? It was like a real Marmite. Uh, coffees yeah absolutely went crazy for it and just bought you know and were so disappointed when it finished and then other other people absolutely 
yeah <laughs> but i think that's the best thing you know like we instead of thinking oh we should only buy small farmers we should only buy specialty 90 plus it's shouldn't we act just like wine buyers or wine drinkers like in a weekday i just want to have my basic brazil in the morning mm -hmm. but then in the afternoon i want to try an anaerobic coffee and that's how i do as a uh, green buyer as well i want to buy a bit of everything and offer a bit of everything that's definitely our approach you know at the moment i mean even like for example our subscriptions we have the essentials so that's just like going to be the same coffee for three or four months at a time um and that's just because you know if you just want your breakfast coffee and you don't want it to change yeah. every single day you know and you want it to be nice with milk and whatever like you don't want to be challenged first thing in the morning before you go. yeah exactly um and then like the explorer subscription the idea of that is like so there will be some coffees like that in there of course because it's just everything you do but then you'll also get more challenging coffees that you might just want to have in the afternoon or something you know you're not no matter how wonderful an ethiopian fruity and floral and delicate it is if you have it every single day for every cup of coffee for a month you might get tired of it you know it's not really yeah i agree i think it's it's all about drinking a bit of everything, seeing what you like, or even discovering flavors. Yeah. Trying new things. Yeah, that's the exciting thing about coffee. And that's been a really fun thing with customers is, um, and especially now we're doing some virtual cup cuppings and things like that. But, um, you know, even before, even just with making coffees for them or selling beans to them, you know, hearing them kind of experience all these different flavors and, and being surprised by things and um, yeah and it's important to not judge as well like um people that just want a simple coffee then it's fair enough it's their taste and um yeah so i i wanted to ask you a little bit about like this year uh you know with with covid i i saw you know on your website you've been uh, producing some, you know, uh, blog posts, and then, you know, recently the journal as well, which was really lovely to see where you're, um, you were interviewing Patricia, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, whose coffee we, we roasted, uh, I'm trying to think, was it earlier this year or at the end of last year, maybe? Last year, because I took a bag of coffee for her. Oh, yeah for yeah. christmas enjoy it that you sent me yeah she really loved it okay. they keep the bag as a decoration oh that's, <laughs> oh that's really nice um yeah so you've been sharing you know i'm trying to share a lot more information about you know the producers to us as consumers um at, at our end um are our producers what what are do producers ask you the same sorts of questions that we ask you like are they asking about what is it that consumers want from the coffee or what how do how do those conversations go on the other end of the um i think they're always really curious to know like did people like my coffee how well is it going and um i don't know when i bring clients not anymore but hopefully soon when clients come with me to brazil the the producers they like very anxious when we are cupping the coffee like what did they think and how did the cupping go they're very excited to like learn more learn what people like but at the same time um some of them like 
they're always interested to know if people like their coffee, but sometimes, which I find challenging these days, and I never realized I would encounter this challenge, is that sometimes people are just shy. They don't want to send pictures of themselves or they don't want to talk too much, give interviews, you know. They have great coffee, but they are just shy and keep it to themselves mm -hmm. or sometimes don't even deal much with technology. And it is challenging because if you buy a coffee and you just want pictures, you want to learn more about the producer. And I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> I don't think they want to give an interview or they don't speak any English, you know, yeah. so... But in a sense, like, I mean, that's, that's, producers should have the right to, to share or not share what they want, I guess, in that, you know, I think there's kind of a commodification um, of kind of producers, in a sense, like of their pictures and their stories and stuff. And we're always yeah. aware of that, like when we are sharing pictures of, you know, we tend to share just a picture of, um, you know, a farmer, if it's the actual farmer that's actually produced that coffee, not just kind of, because you get a lot of these like general pictures of, you know, or you, yeah. you get the sort of muddy hands holding coffee and this kind of, you know, these kind of images that sort of real kind of, um, that's used in marketing that I don't know what it is about it, but it, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable on some levels, you know? Um, yeah. But it feels like that's kind of exploiting people's kind of, you know, it's romanticizing in a sense, like the, you know, the story of the coffee. Um, yeah. But like, for example, one day we had an issue that we bought some, we bought a coffee lot from a, a woman farmer we haven't worked with before. And we were really excited with the coffee. Mm -hmm. And then we sold the entire lot to a roaster and he was like, oh, send us promotion material and stuff can we have a picture of her and I was like asking her can you send pictures can you send pictures and then like no pictures for weeks and then her son calls me or emails me and says look she's feeling overweight and she doesn't want to send you pictures is that okay so you know those things happen too and how can you deal with it and I just said I just told them the truth and they were like, oh my God, fair enough. Like, don't worry, we will figure something out. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we are talking to our customers always about the provenance and it's really important that you know where your coffee's from and sharing information and transparency and, you know, information about the producer and whatever, but it's a delicate balance, isn't it? Of also not invading, you know, people's kind of privacy to use them for marketing purposes as well. Like. Yeah, exactly. Even Israel's wife, she has a, she manages a washing station that is only uh, managed by woman employees, mm -hmm. and she does a really cool job. But she's very private, so we tried even to in, to talk more to her, interview, get some pictures, and mm -hmm. like be more involved. But she just keeps it more to herself. Like uh, she's not as talkative as Israel as you met him. And it's also fair enough, I guess. We have to respect her. She's doing a cool job and we should just like trust that she's doing this job, this cool job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I found that with doing the podcast, some people are super happy to come on and chat and other people just really, it's not their thing and they you don't want to do that and that's fine. You know, you got to, Gotta respect that. <laughs> yeah.
But, um, but in your Coffee with Care journal, um, you are sharing more directly the stories of, of producers, um, you know, with, I guess, you know, roasters and so on here. Um, can I ask, you know, as a producer, as somebody who comes from that background of producing coffee, um, but also obviously in your previous and current jobs, what is it that you think roasteries in Europe and consumers of coffee in Europe should be doing to make the supply chain a fairer one? Like what, what, what are actions that we can take to... Um, like we were talking about before, I think the notion of understanding the importance of all levels of coffee I mean, I'm talking specialty coffee-wise, like good-tasting, great-tasting coffee, but not just the super high-end micro-lots is fundamental. Like, it's a thing that, it's something that makes the dynamic of the industry flow a lot better, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, also, understanding farmers as, like, professionals, you know, like, not someone there to send you pictures or it's, some farmers are just, pretty professional people that just want to make a good job, be recognized by it in terms of like getting paid a fair price, continue with their lives and stuff like that. So thinking of farmers more like an uh, equal to us, yeah. not just someone there in a developing country, you know, I don't want to sound like harsh, but yeah, just maybe thinking of them as equals yeah. and someone you can learn from when you travel you can have a nice chat with and not necessarily we need to do much else we just like need to pay fair prices for our coffees and promote as much as we can their name mm -hmm. so. I mean, I think you said in, in, um, in a blog post I was looking at that the situation in Ethiopia, despite COVID, you know, because at the moment um, they're harvesting in yeah. um, Ethiopia, but I think you were saying you're hopeful that COVID hasn't had too much of an impact on this. Yeah, the thing is like, I think due to the young population in Ethiopia, but mostly due to the fact that the government was acting um, was fast on requesting people not to travel around too much. Mm -hmm. The rural areas were relatively fine. I mean, not many cases there and people don't really travel that much in Ethiopia. As you saw, there's like a remote areas is distant to get from one place to the other. So coffee regions wise, things are fine. Even in Addis now, things are fine. There were some cases, but now it's a, everything is like under control, at least for now. They do have issues now with the conflicts in the north, but yeah, yeah. COVID wise is okay. Yeah, and how how uh, how has has that had an impact? The conflict um, that's happening in the north has that had an impact in Addis or for you know in Addis? And um, so the thing is. It's very concentrated in the north for now. And it, I think it's a very serious issue that they are having. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to get concrete information 
yeah. from Ethiopia and when those situations happen because the government shuts internet and like to avoid communication in between people that are fighting. So we don't really exactly know what's happening. We know it's not great. It hasn't affected coffee regions. Yeah. Uh, everything is fine with everyone we know in Ethiopia, but it is serious and it might affect as well the logistics for us when the next crop comes yeah with delays and things like that yeah yeah it's hard to know it's really a shame because I, I remember that was one of the the things that um seemed so positive when we were traveling in ethiopia back in january in 2019 that there was maybe people were hopeful there was a kind of you know new Ethiopia, you know, that was that people were Ethiopian and not the, the kind of tribal divisions and and um, yeah, yeah, it seems to have suddenly, suddenly cleared up. Um, yeah, it is really sad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess I was trying to think was there, oh, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Brexit um, coming up. Uh. Here, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be everybody's reaction when I ask about it. I know. Everyone's like, oh God. Yeah. But honestly, as as an importer, I mean, you know, you you know, we're kind of a little bit worried about it. And we're thinking like from our own perspective, you know, shipping coffee to customers in, in Europe, for example, or, you know, getting coffee in from like warehouses in Europe. But like for you, it's your your whole business, isn't it? Yeah. So, how, I mean, how's that looking just now? Since we started Kamba, Brexit was already in the horizon. So we've always had that in the back of our minds. We do have some coffee stored in Hamburg mm -hmm. in case we want to sell coffees to Europe. But we do have now our main focus in the UK. Mm -hmm. And in terms of importing coffee, I think little will change because we are not importing um in the EU anyways, but the bureaucracy will be a lot bigger for us if we wanna sell coffee to Europe. And I think there will be delays in deliveries of everything like back towards the end of the year. But for me, it's very bizarre that the government, I mean, we know we will have extra bureaucracy to sell coffee to the EU, but we still don't know exactly what's going to happen. And it's supposed to happen in January, so it's, scary and frustrating yeah. Yeah. but yeah since our yeah. focus has been the uk i think we are not that stressed out sure okay well that's good <laughs> that's a positive yeah we keep getting letters from inland revenue asking if we're brexit ready and i just really don't know what yeah we were watching some webinars on how to get prepared and stuff we got like some registrations not registration numbers in um germany like the vat sort of thing and we are trying to get prepared but if they don't really tell us exactly what we have to do it's yeah. difficult Oh, but thank you so much, Bruna, for spending. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, we look forward to this month. We'll be drinking the Bale Mountain 
Um, and we'll be looking forward to some lovely coffees from Brazil, hopefully at some point next year. Um, cool. And maybe we'll be able to speak to Israel as well himself. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to arrange that. Mm, yeah, lovely. Thank, oh, well, you. thank you so much.